Hey, Crosswalk. You doing all right? Good, good. Congratulations, Tellus family. Beautiful, beautiful. Congratulations. Thanks for letting us be a part of that and doing that with us today. Um, yeah, we second week of the year. Are you having a good year so far? Keeping, keeping all those resolutions? Liars. You have, you've all dropped it. You've all forgotten at this point. It's 14 days in. Um, no, thanks for, thanks for being here with us today. Um, just so you know, we had last week... We had a record attendance in all of our campuses all across, and it was really, it was really exciting actually. And so that I want to say thank you for making me remember that church still matters and committing to what God is calling you to, um, to be you know just coming alongside, being part of the community, being here present all the time. We thank you for that. We're in our second week taking a look at the theology behind our end statements or our value statements. Right? We've got these five end statements that we speak about, and there's a theology behind every single one of them. So let's take a look at our second end statement. It says this, Crosswalk will be a community where people learn and grow in an authentic relationship with God. And there's a lot to unpack here. So we sort of need to exegete this. And we're going to do some work today. I hope that's okay. I'm going to bring in some Greek. We're going to talk about some things, some history. I hope that's all right. So what are the theological words in that sentence. I think there's three, the big ones, learn, grow, and authentic. We're going to take a look at that word learn first. We are to be learners is what we found out through scripture again and again. Or there's another word for it, right? And that word is disciple. We are to be disciples of Christ or learners of Christ. And it actually comes from the Greek word, don't get scared, mathetes, right? It refers generally to any student or pupil or apprentice, and so when we think about, and, and I have a mixed, mixed, mixed relationship with this idea of discipleship. Um, we get that a lot. And in fact, when we go to plant a new church somewhere or have a new Lovewell group, inevitably somebody's going to ask us the question, what's your discipleship process? And I'm always like, oh, that's a great question. What's our learning process? And they're like, well, yes. I mean, what's your discipleship process? I'm like, same word, same word. See, we think discipleship is something that um, is a program that people kind of, we spit them out the end and they're these fully mature functioning Christians. Um, if that were the case, we'd all just put you on a conveyor belt and you'd end up great and our churches would be wonderful places and nobody would argue and nobody would fight and it would be wonderful and churches exactly like that. <laughs> Not all the time. Um, so to be a disciple just means to be a learner. But there's also a second piece of this particular definition, right? So it's to be a learner or pupil, but it also has the connotation of adherent, right? Someone who follows the teaching or the teacher as well. This idea of believer or adherent following those teachings. So it's not just learning the teachings, it's actually following those teachings, now, this is particularly true with Jesus because, as we've said many times before, he is the teaching and the teacher. He is the message and the messenger. He is everything that encompasses our faith. And so we are not just learners. We are not just disciples in the learning sense, but we are also disciples in the adherent 
sense. And just for the record, this was not uncommon, the idea of understanding, um, understanding that there were disciples for, in, Greek, in Greek culture, in Jewish culture, um, certainly in Roman culture as well, though it's more pronounced in Greek and Jewish culture, followers of a teacher were pretty common. In fact, in Judaism in the first century, there was such an influx of Hellenistic thought or Greek thought coming through the Romans that they actually began primary schools to teach the young boys, these yeshiva schools to teach the young boys the Torah and the Tanakh so that they would understand where they come from and be Jewish in their culture and in their belief and in their adherence. When they turned 13 and had their bar mitzvah, they would no longer be in the primary school, as it were, and so they would go and connect themselves with a teacher and follow that teacher's teachings. We know this to be true because we know that Paul was a student of the law under Gamaliel, who was a Jerusalem rabbi, a rabbi from Jerusalem. We see this in Acts 5 and in Acts 22. So we know that this is something that happens. So to be a disciple is to be a learner. And the truth is, we follow a first century Jewish rabbi as well. And so if we are disciples, we have to ask, how are we learning? Who are we learning about? And this is assumed that we're doing that. But there's really two implications, if you ask me. Two, the two implications of being a disciple and being a learner actually leads us to the next two words. The first thing, the first implication is that if you learn, you grow. And that's pretty true across the board. If you're somebody who's a learner, chances are you are growing. You're growing your intellect, you're growing your understanding, you're growing your hopefully empathy, all those different types of things, right? And number two, our growth depends on our authentic understanding of the one who teaches us and the teacher's authentic understanding of us. I say this to my kids quite often. Knowing the teacher is half the battle, right? Some people understand what I'm saying. So for instance, one of my kids comes home and says the teacher doesn't like me. Teachers don't dislike their students by and large. I'm not saying we don't ever dislike our students. But by and large, we don't. We don't get, people don't go into teaching to dislike kids. They don't go in because like, I want to torture kids my whole life. That's not usually the career path. She's like, I want these young minds to learn. I want, you know, they're like sponges and I want to pour into them. That's usually it. So when someone, one of my kids comes home and says, well, the teacher doesn't like me. My first question is, where do you sit? Where do you sit in class? You know what the answer is, right? On the back row. I'm like, oh yeah, because you're a troublemaker. That's why the teacher doesn't like you. No, not my kids. Of course not my kids. And of course, you never sat on the back row. I'm surprised you're on the front row of church, quite honestly. <laughs> just to say, I'm just saying. <laughs> you learn, uh, for sure. So, no, and I always tell them, listen, I'm a professor, and, and if there's a difference between an A- minus and a B plus, it all hinges on me knowing you. If there's some student, and I can't recall your face because you've never talked to me, it's a B+. Plus. Because this is what I want from my students. I want them to sit close so I can see them and I can look into their eyes. And I want them to respond to the way I teach. I want to see. <sighs> That's what I want to say. I, they could be listening to a podcast on their AirPods. I don't care. I want to feel like I'm being listened to. And if I grade that kid's paper and it's a B plus and I go, nah, that kid's paying attention. That kid's right with me there. Ah, yeah, I love that. Mom. That's a good one. That's a good one. You do that to me, I'm giving you an A minus. Right? 
Even if you don't ever come to class again, as long as I've made that connection with you. Knowing how the teacher is, knowing how the teacher teaches, that's, that's an incredible part of the learning process. We're not, teachers are not robots, right? Dispensing information. Knowing who they are makes a big difference. Part of our learning, right? The learning that leads to growth is knowing the teacher. That's really important. In fact, when I was in college, um, I took three classes from the same professor. Great, great person. Somebody I had known my whole life. My father worked in the, at the university, so it's somebody I had known my whole life. I knew this teacher. So I took the first class, turned my first paper in, got an A, because I'm quite bright. <laughs> right? Got an A. That was awesome. Got the paper back. Did the, did the second paper, and you know how it is. If you get an A on that first paper, you're going to slack just a little bit on that second paper, because you're not, you know, your anxiety is a little lower. So did the second paper, turned it in, knew it wasn't as good, got an A. All right, maybe I'm smarter than I think I am. Probably not. So turn in the third paper, not quite as good as the second paper, which wasn't quite as good as the first paper, got an A. I really like this professor. Um, so I, I finished the quarter, did, I got an A, I got an A in the class, it was great. Second time, second quarter, different class, turned in my first paper, got an A. Now I'm like, I wonder how close this professor is paying attention to me. So I turned in a paper I had turned into the previous, on the previous class. We're not going to talk about academic integrity here today, all right? <laughs> That was not what was in my, the forefront of my head. So I turned a paper I had turned in before. I reprinted it out, put my name on it, put the date on it, turned it in, got an A. Turned in a paper I had turned in at the end of the last class, didn't change anything on it, didn't even change the date, got an A. Started turning in papers that had been graded and still had grading on them. got an A. So when the third opportunity to take a class from this professor showed up, I took it. And I did not, not a thing. I did not turn in anything I hadn't done before or anything. Got a straight A. Knowing the teacher matters, friends. And I know you think, oh, he must feel so bad because his, their par his parents wasted money on his education and he wasn't learning anything. I learned a lot about that teacher <laughs> that I sold to other students. I'm just kidding. I didn't do that. I have, I have lines. I have lines. Um, right? Knowing the teacher is half a battle. It's really important. And we know that Jesus knew the teacher, right? And, he know th and we know that Jesus also knew his disciples, and he wanted them to know him. This is why it says in Mark 3, 14, then he appointed 12 of them and called them his apostles. They were to accompany him. They were to be with him, says other translations. And he would send them out to preach. The reason why is he wanted them to be with him, to know him, to listen to him preach so that they might be preachers as well and teachers as well. This is kind of a train-the-trainer model, Right? You have to learn the material and you have to learn the teacher as well. This is imperative if we are to be involved in the great co-mission that God has for us to go into the world and make learners, make disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. See, there's this assumption 
that as you learn, you grow, and eventually you will become a teacher as well. And I got to tell you, going from being a learner to a teacher does take growth. Any of you who have done that know what I'm talking about. When I was a student missionary, um, they give you a one-week training in Hawaii, which is pretty much like, you're going to feel really bad, stay, don't leave for a week, that's what they tell you. And then you go, and now all of a sudden I'm standing in front of 44 students, my first class, 44 students. I had made my lesson plans. They lasted a whole of nine minutes because I had never taught before. I didn't know how quickly I would get through material. And so I did what any good teacher does. I put a question on the board and I said, work in your own groups for the next 41 minutes until the class was over. Right? It, took, it took me a long time to learn because I had to, get, I had to get familiar with the material. I had to understand it. I'll tell you what, once I had been a teacher, when I came back to be a learner once again to finish up my college career, I was a very different kind of learner because I had taught. So you see how this process works together. You learn, you teach, you learn, but it all hinges on your relationship with the teacher. Your learning is only as good as your authentic relationship with the teacher. Why was Jesus such a good learner and why was he such a good teacher? It's because he knew the Father so well. Matthew eleven twenty seven. my Father has entrusted everything to me. No one truly knows the Son except the Father and no one truly knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him, to, chooses to teach about the Father. And Jesus knew the Father in an authentic and special way. John 7, 29, but I know him because I come from him and he sent me to you. And that knowing and that sending brings Jesus to us to learn and grow and have an authentic relationship with him as well. The relationship Jesus has with the Father is authentic. So let's talk about what an authentic relationship looks like for a while and what it means. It means that God knows Jesus completely. That means there is nothing that is shrouded or hidden between them in their relationship. And we understand that this is sort of the knowledge of God in general, right? Well, God knows everything that there is to know. So yeah, of course he knows, but he knows us without reserve. Listen, it's every parent's fear that they don't really know their children, right? I, I was a youth pastor for quite a few years and every once in a while, a parent would call me up and say, hey, I'd like to talk to you about my child great, come in. They come into my office, they sit down, they start talking about this person that I had never met before. And after a while, I'd be like, have, have you met your son? He is none of those things that you've said. Sometimes better, sometimes worse. But oftentimes, they don't know their children at all. Oftentimes, we don't. I have that same fear that my kids are somebody completely different when they walk out of the room. Right? And I mean, let's face it, like, let's give our kids a little, a little, like, space there, right? They probably have a little bit of a different vocabulary when they're outside your house than when they're in your house. Like, don't look at their texts. It'll be shocking. But, you know, we all go through that process. It's okay. Um, but we all have that fear that we don't really know them. And the reason why we fear that we don't really know them is that they don't tell us the truth, that we don't have an authentic relationship. We hope that's not the case. And the kids are afraid of having an authentic relationship and really telling you what they think or what they feel because they're afraid that you'll know them and you'll reject them. God not only knew Jesus, but he found delight in Jesus. 
How do we know this? Because he speaks about it twice in the New Testament. I love the fact that the only time God speaks in the New Testament, he speaks to affirm his love and joy in his son. First one is Matthew 3, 17, and a voice comes down from heaven saying, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. And the second time was at the ascension in Matthew 17, 5, where it says, but even as he spoke, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, same thing. This is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. But this time he says, learn from him. Listen to him. Same statement, but with a declaration to learn from Jesus. So God knew and knows Jesus. Does Jesus know you in the same way? I think we've made the case that he certainly has the information, but does Jesus know us? The good news is that we have clear direction in Scripture that shows us that Jesus does know who we are and knows us authentically, and we should know Jesus as well. John 10, 14, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own sheep, and they know me. Just as my Father knows me, and I know the Father, so I sacrifice my life for the sheep. I know them so much, and I love them so much, I'm willing to sacrifice. If any of you have pets, you know that your pet knows your voice. Right? And if you have, if, so we've, I, I mentioned last week this dog, Bo, that we have, who, you know, created a space of belonging for me. It's a very sweet story. Well, this dog knows my voice, and this dog loves me unreasonably so. Like when anybody else from the family walks in the house, they're, she's very happy they're there. But when I start talking, we have hardwood floors. This dog wag, wags her tail so hard that her feet move back and forth on the hardwood floors. She's just so excited that I'm there, right? This is how well Jesus knows you and how much he loves you. Because this is the truth. You can only love that which you truly know. You may love the idea of someone, but until you truly know them, you don't really know if you're in love with them or not. This makes sense. So if the love of God is everything and it is real and it comes from a place where God knows each and every one of us truly, it's fascinating that he still loves us. See, the problem is we all have this incredible fear of being rejected. And so we hide things, we shroud things, we try and put our best foot forward and keep those things that other people might know till later. I mean, do you remember the beginning of a relationship that you've had? On your first date, can you say that's truly authentically you? I mean, really. Guys, you, you clean your car. <laughs> but like all the way, you like really clean your car, get it really nice, it's beautiful, right? You don't just do that drive-by shower that you normally do, like you actually shower and clean it all up. Right? Women the same way. You want to make sure that you know, what, what this person sees at first is hopefully authentically you, but it's going to be you plus. <laughs> right? Because why not? Why not? We're afraid to be authentic. The first meal, the first time they come over. Sometimes we continue this throughout our lives as well. Sometimes we even do that at church. Right? We don't come as our authentic selves. We come as this best version of ourselves, and that's great. But is it real? I mean, why are we afraid to be authentic? If you remember the, the table I put up here last year, last week, right up here, it had to be known and not loved. And that meant to be rejected. 
And that's why we are so afraid to be authentic. And it leads to a lot of really weird behaviors. But let me affirm something for you today. With, with unequivocal doubt, without unequivocal, I said that incorrectly. With no doubt, Jesus knows you and Jesus loves you. Full stop. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what you hope and dream for. And he knows your weaknesses. And he knows your heart. And he knows what brings you joy. And he knows what you're afraid of. And none of it has stopped Jesus from loving you. So what are we so worried about? Are you worried that God is moving away from you the more God gets to know you? Because this just isn't possible. Right? The more God gets to know you, the closer God moves towards you because he knows you authentically and you begin to know God authentically as well. So the first question I have for you is this. Are you willing to be authentic with God? Are you willing to be honest with God and others about who you are, what you are dealing with, and what is great in your life? And this leads to a second question, maybe almost more important. Are you willing to be honest with yourself? Because being honest with God means that you have to be honest with yourself and authentic with yourself. And by the way, sometimes we need professional help with this. And there is no shame in that. Because sometimes the barriers that we have in our lives that have been built up, the trauma, the things that we deal with, sometimes it becomes impossible for us to do it on our own. And so seek help when you need to seek help. It is not only okay, it is a blessing from God that there are people who study this and help us work through those kinds of issues. Sometimes we can't just pray that away. Sometimes we have to have help. You see, but we have to face the demons that we hold away from God thinking he might be afraid of them. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, we want to hide ourselves from God. Are we protecting God when we do that? Authentic love begins with being authentic with ourselves. Without the ability to do this, we never can really be authentic with God and certainly not with others. We'll never have that peace. We'll never be honest and we'll never be able to grow and learn because our own eyes will be so filled with the logs that we are hiding, we'll never be able to see past them. But let me be clear about something. Being totally honest with one another is not just truth-telling one another. We, when we went to Chattanooga, my wife and I went to see a play, and I may have mentioned this before, it was August Osage County, and we should have known by what they told us when we walked in that we were in for quite a journey because they said there's two intermissions in this play. If you go to a play with two intermissions, understand this, it's too long. <laughs> so long. And there's a, a movie in Meryl Streep and Julia Roberts are in it, a bunch of really famous people. But it's, it's this just really difficult family. I won't spoil it for you, but there's this one scene where the mother, Meryl Streep, just goes after every single person in her family. And she just keeps saying, I'm just telling the truth. I'm just telling the truth. That's not what I'm talking about. That's just mean and hurtful. When I say we be authentic, it means we're vulnerable enough to tell people how we really feel and what we're dealing with, and what we think about God, the good stuff and the bad stuff. But I have to ask this question, right? How do we get there? And I think 
There's a lot of ways in scripture that we can get there, but you have to know that you have a safe place to belong first and that God loves you. And so I think we need to step into scripture a little bit and see what God has to say and even what like the psalmist has to say about who we are. I love it. I'll start with Psalm 139, 14. And it says this, thank you for making me so wonderfully complex, God. I love that the author says that. And you've heard it translated this way. I, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I like this version. Lord, thank you for making me this weird mess of a person. I'm really complex, but your workmanship is marvelous. Oh, I know that. This is an affirmation of the way that we've been made. Because we're a myriad of different colored pieces put together. We are puzzles. But we're not that thrift store puzzle that you went and bought and got so excited about that it only cost 25 cents, right? We've all bought that puzzle. You know that puzzle that you work on for three or four hours and you get to the end and there's like four pieces that aren't there? That's not the kind of puzzle we are. Because God also says in Colossians 2.10, you're complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. You're a whole person. You're not lacking anything. Because in all those cracks and all those gaps in your life and all those puzzle pieces that may not feel like they're there, God says, I can fill those holes. So now, even in the cracks of our lives and even in the broken places, what people see is not the brokenness. What they see is God shining through that crack to bless the world in the way that he's healed you and is healing you. And in fact, God says you're actually incredibly valuable. This is how valuable you are, Isaiah 43. Others were given in exchange for you. You know who the others are? It's Jesus. I traded their lives for yours because you're precious to me. You are honored and I love you, says God. This is how much God knows you and loves you. That, that is belonging, friends. Feel free to be authentic with a God who is interested in this communion with you. And you know, we carry these baggage, pieces of baggage with us or we feel broken and God says, I'm taking care of that and you're a whole person. But even if that weren't the case, 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. So no matter what you're carrying, God's recreating you in his image once again. We look towards a new year because it's a new resolution, new year, new you. God's like, I've, I'm going to start from the very beginning, born again. There's nothing that you're carrying from your past that he hasn't taken from you. There's nothing that has caused you damage and hurt that God's not gonna help you with. Crosswalk will be a community of belonging where people learn and grow in an authentic relationship with God. One last story. When my wife and I went out on our second first date, and that's a long story, but when we finally went out on our second first date, we uh, went to the Rutherford Grill up in Napa Valley. 
And we've been talking on the phone for a while. I was living in Southern California. She was in Northern California. Thought there might be something there. And we kind of had, you know, one of those conversations. This is the beginning of our relationship, though. You know, one of those conversations where you're kind of like, hey, are we going to tell the truth or are we going to not? You know, and, and we decided, hey, let's, let's just tell each other the truth. Let's be authentic. So for about three and a half hours, if not more, we sat at this table and we just told each other our truth, right? Who we were, what we'd experienced, what we felt about things. It was honest. It was not first date material. It's what you tell people when you break up with them, right? When you've got nothing left to lose and you're like, well, here's what I really think. We started that way. I don't know why. We just thought it was right. And I remember after I dropped her off and I was driving home, thinking in probably not so many words, I am known and I am loved. And for the last 28 years, I get to wake up every morning and look at this beautiful woman and say, I am known and I am loved. I'm not rejected. I'm free to be authentic. Crosswalk will be a community where people learn and grow in an authentic relationship with God, with each other, with ourselves. Because belonging only comes from real relationships. So if we're to be a community of belonging, this piece is just as important. And I don't expect anyone to walk in here and confess their sins to the whole congregation. But what I do expect is you to create a place in your heart where God can speak to you, where you can speak to God and others can hear. Because we don't have communion with one another unless we're honest and authentic with one another. And we don't have communion with God until we submit and give ourselves completely over to him. That's what it means to be in a community of belonging where people grow and learn authentically. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, Lord of grace, Lord of belonging, just thank you. Thank you for being a God who's willing to be authentic with us. Tell us how much we're worth to you. And then to back all that up with action and love and grace. So, Lord, I just want to thank you because our hearts need to be in communion with you and with one another. So, Lord, accept our praise, accept our worship as a thank you for your willingness to be in community with us. In your name I pray, amen. Let's stand and worship him one more time.